sermon series in the Gospel of John, as Zach mentioned a few minutes ago. And I assume many of us in this room would identify the Gospel of John as perhaps their favorite book of the entire Bible. On top of that, the Gospel of John is often the first book that you're told to read when you come to believe in Jesus. And there are so many treasured and memorable passages in the Gospel of John. We think about John 3.16, of course, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him may have eternal life. We think about John 14.6, where Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We may think about John 11.35, just two words, Jesus wept. Now, out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is certainly unique. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often categorized together as the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share significant portions of their writing in common, and those three authors very obviously used each other's writings to produce their own. But John, again, is a little bit different, to the point that John is given its own category. There are passages in the Gospel of John that occur nowhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And likewise, there are passages in those three Gospels that are absent from the Gospel of John. But that's nothing to be concerned about, nothing to worry about. Just because the four Gospels aren't identical doesn't mean they somehow oppose each other. Each gospel has its own personality, and each gospel makes its own unique contributions to our knowledge of Jesus. One early Christian writing in 170 A.D. said this, Although various points are taught in the several books of the gospel, yet it makes no difference to the faith of the believers, since all things and all of them are declared by one supreme spirit. In other words, while these Gospels aren't identical, they're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, we don't just want to explain away the things that make John's Gospel unique. In fact, we're going to embrace them. We're going to be spending most of our time in this sermon series looking at passages that aren't included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, one of the things that does make the Gospel of John stand out in particular is how much it focuses on the identity of Jesus. John makes no effort to keep his readers in suspense about who Jesus is. As we're going to see, John makes bold claims about the identity of Jesus from the very start of the book. And throughout the rest of the gospel, we see multiple confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders, and many of these confrontations revolve around Jesus' identity. Many of those confrontations have to do with where Jesus came from. Many of them have to do with how Jesus can possibly claim such great authority. But John's also not shy about the purpose for writing this gospel. He's not just trying to write down historical events. He's not just trying to write down facts for people to accumulate in their brains. He's not trying to remain unbiased. John comes out very clearly wanting his readers to believe something. We read in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As you read the Gospel of John, every single word that John wrote, every single word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's there so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, as we start out today, we're going to be focusing primarily on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And this beautiful passage of Scripture has multiple themes that stick out, and those themes will be very important later as we continue reading. Themes like Jesus being the Word of God, themes like light and darkness, themes like bearing witness, grace and truth. And as we read this passage today, John 1, 1 through 18, The biggest question I want you to ask yourself is this. What do these verses tell us about Jesus? What do these verses tell us about Jesus? And just for fair warning, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, they dive pretty deep into the identity of Jesus. Deep theology that we might not all be totally used to. But this deep theology is good for us as believers. And this theology helps lay the groundwork for everything that we read in the rest of John's gospel. So open up to John chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read in John chapter 1, verse 1, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Uh, Thank you that we have the Gospel of John. That here we are 2,000 years after your son Jesus walked the earth, and we can read about him. We can read the things he said. We can read what he taught. We can read how he died for us. Thank you that you give us books like the Gospel of John. Thank you that you've given us your word, that you want to be known by us. You want to be in relationship with us. You are not a stranger to us. So I pray that as we open your word, that our desire to know you better would only grow and would only increase as we read your word. Father, I pray for this church, the people sitting in this room right now, uh, as well as people who aren't here. I pray that our love for you would grow, our love for each other would grow, Our love for your word would grow. We pray for some of the requests written on our prayer board out in the lobby that we see in our bulletins. We pray for Sharon Nass, recovering from a heart attack this past week. Thank you that she's recovering well, that it wasn't anything too major. I pray that you would continue to watch over her. Be with the walkers in Florida. Um, We love them, we miss them, but look forward to them returning soon. And I pray that you would get them here safely. And again, just be with us this morning as we worship that this worship time would be not only beneficial for us, but that it would also be honoring to you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all that you give to us. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. For the first few centuries following Christ's death and resurrection, the question of Jesus' identity and the question of Jesus' relationship to God the Father perplexed many within the church. More specifically, people ask questions such as, well, how exactly did the incarnation work out? I mean, during Jesus' earthly ministry, was he more God or was he more man? Was it 51% God, 49% man, or was it 50-50? How exactly did that play out? People ask questions like, well, how long has Jesus existed? Another question people asked was, well, was Jesus always divine or did he just randomly wake up one day and become divine? Was Jesus actually human, or did he just kind of look human? Now, these questions may sound like splitting hairs to some of us, but they actually had a significant impact both theologically and practically on the faith that we practice today and on the churches that we worship in today. Because of questions like these, councils were held, debates were had, some teachings were affirmed, some teachings were condemned, And creeds were formulated to help people believe and understand what it is that they profess. But as we look to determine who Jesus is, and as we look to determine how Jesus relates to God the Father, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is a great place to start. So let's look at those verses, piece by piece, starting with verses 1 through 3. If you look back in your Bible, the first words in verse 1, In the beginning, in the beginning, do those words remind you of any other part of Scripture? Well, they should remind us of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, in Genesis 1, how exactly did God do that? Well, he did it by speaking. Everything comes into existence because God said God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. God said, let us create man in our own image. Creation is born because God speaks, because God says words. 
But in the Gospel of John, the word that John is talking about, that refers to none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now that word was with God, and that word was God. From the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus was there. One of the first things that John makes clear is often referred to as the pre-existence of Christ. Jesus is an eternal being. Like God the Father, there has never been a point where Jesus was not. Jesus is not a created being like you and me. He didn't have a beginning. He has always been. The way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, which we read just a few minutes ago, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul says that Jesus was before all of that stuff came into existence. He is above all of that stuff. He is superior to all that stuff. We see in the Nicene Creed, the earliest Christians in 325 A.D., they put this all together and said, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. But not only is Jesus eternal, Jesus really, truly, fully is God. Christians have classically understood the Trinity as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons are distinct in their function, but they're one in their nature. For example, look at Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus the Son died, not God the Father, not the Holy Spirit. However, all three members of the Trinity were involved. If you look at the resurrection, God the Father raises Jesus the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Different functions, all fully God, same nature. All three members of the Trinity are distinct, and yet they're unified. They do not contradict each other in any way. They do not disagree about anything And they exist in perfect love for each other. Now it's just verses 1 through 3. Now we get to verses 4 through 9. Back to those words that John uses way in the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. In the beginning. John is speaking of a new beginning. One just as significant as the very creation of the world. That's how big a deal this is. This is like the world is starting new. And this new beginning is the incarnation, the light and life of God himself coming in bodily form. John indicates that the world is a dark place, and I doubt many of us would disagree with him. We look at our world and we see pain, we see brokenness, we see rebellion, death, and sin. We look at our world and something just seems off. And that goes way back to Genesis as well. But as Jesus enters this world in bodily form, God is sending light and life into a world full of darkness and death. 
God is redeeming this world, and Jesus is the key to all of it. The first person that recognizes this in the Gospel of John is a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist bears witness to, he proclaims and announces that the light has come. John says that this light enlightens everyone. Now that phrase, enlightens everyone, it can't mean that everyone is going to believe in Jesus. We know that's not true, and we'll see that throughout John's gospel. But that word that he uses, enlighten, that's an interesting word, isn't it? What does it mean to be enlightened? What do we mean when we say that somebody has been enlightened? Well, what we mean is that that person sees things clearly and correctly. Many people call the time from the 18th century or so through now the Enlightenment. They call it the Enlightenment because this several hundred year period is when science progressed and innovation happened at a shocking pace and the world was seemingly on the way to utopia. Heaven on earth. Everything was getting better. Humans were getting smarter. People were living longer. Everything was only going to improve. And many people came to believe that part of that progress and part of that innovation, part of what it meant to be enlightened, was to cast off old primitive beliefs, like the belief in God, for example. Many people today will say that the only way you can truly claim to be enlightened is if you've gotten over all that religion stuff, if you've left all those fairy tales and superstitions behind you. But according to John, Jesus is the true light which enlightens everyone. In other words, we can't see God the Father. We can't see our world And we can't see ourselves and each other clearly and correctly if we don't know who Jesus is. The only way to be enlightened in both this world and in heaven is to respond to Jesus. Moving forward, verses 10 through 13. As we just mentioned, not everyone is going to believe in Jesus in this gospel. And that reality should break our hearts. Even though the true light stands right in front of many of these people, a lot of them in John's gospel will continue to love darkness instead. Often it's presented as willful ignorance. And if we take what John said earlier about Jesus' presence at creation, if we take that seriously, it means that Jesus would be rejected by the very people whom he created. That means that according to Psalm 139, where David says that God knit him together in his mother's womb, that God saw his unformed substance. Well, Jesus was there for that. He was there for that with David. He was there for that with you. He was there for that with every single human being created in God's image. And yet, so many people in John's gospel, and so many people in our day and age, will reject Jesus to his face. And that should break our hearts. The Jewish leaders in John's gospel, those who are supposed to understand and recognize the will of God better than anyone else around, well, the overwhelming majority of those Jewish leaders, they end up rejecting Jesus as well. Maybe you're thinking of someone that you care about, that you love, 
who has rejected Jesus at this very moment. Maybe you sit here and that someone is you. But the good news of the Gospel of John is that not everyone will reject Jesus. John says many people will receive Jesus and believe in his name. And those people who do are given the right to become children of God. They're no longer strangers to God. They're no longer enemies of God or orphans. They become sons and daughters. And many of the people in Jesus' day, many of the Jewish leaders specifically, had come to believe that the only way you could truly call yourself a child of God is if you were born Jewish, or at least if you lived like you were Jewish. But John makes it clear here that the ultimate criterion for who's a child of God and who isn't, it's about how you respond to Jesus. You can't claim to be a child of God simply because you exist. Being born into the right family doesn't make you a child of God. Jumping through all the right religious hoops doesn't make you a child of God. God's family is made up of those who have received Jesus and believed in his name. John says this requires a new kind of birth, not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but a new birth from God himself. We'll talk about that more next week. But the point of this passage so far is that in order to become a child of God, it all revolves around Jesus. It all comes back to him. And then we close in verses 14 through 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that phrase. Jesus, fully God, becoming simultaneously fully human. Jesus leaving the glories of heaven to enter into our dark and broken world. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you see different stories here and there about God coming and making appearances to people. You think about the story of Abraham when three men come before Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed and God is one of them. But he appears to be a man. You think about the story of Jacob wrestling with God in the wilderness before he goes to meet Esau. But those are all temporary appearances. When's the last time in the Bible that God fully and truly walked around with humans, dwelt with man? Well, for that, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve reject God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're deceived by the serpent. Once they eat that fruit, their eyes are open. They lose their innocence. They lose their harmony with God and creation and each other. And they immediately have to cover themselves up because they've lost their innocence. But then they hear something. It says they hear God walking in the garden, and they immediately try to hide. The last time that God really walked with people before Jesus was way back in Genesis 3 to confront Adam and Eve about their sin and to ultimately cast them out of the garden. But here we see God walking with people like you and like me. It's because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John uses that phrase, grace Upon grace. You know, God has always been gracious in the Bible. That's not just some new development for the New Testament. 
God was gracious when he chose Abraham. God was gracious when he saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. God was gracious when he gave them his law. God was gracious when he saved them time and time again in the book of Judges. God was gracious when he delivered them from their well-deserved exiles in Assyria and Babylon. And God was gracious when he sent the prophets to warn them of their sin. God has always been gracious. That's nothing new. But in sending Jesus, God is showing his grace in a new and radical way. And all of those passages in the Old Testament that display God's grace, they all look forward to the perfect showing of God's grace in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ himself. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has made the Father known. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus does what the law And the priests and animal sacrifices simply couldn't do. He cleanses sinners not on the outside. He cleanses them on the inside. But not only that, he perfectly represents the Father. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. In a quote that we've shared before here on Sunday morning, D.A. Carson writes, Do you want to know what the character of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the holiness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the forgiveness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the glory of God is like? Study Jesus. Study Jesus all the way to that wretched cross. Now, that's a lot of theology to take in for one sitting, verses 1 through 18. But really, all we've done this morning is talk about Jesus. And I pray that we would never get tired of that. God is redeeming the world, and Jesus is the key to all of it. As John the Baptist puts it in chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One more time in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve have sinned, after they've tried to hide from God, after God has confronted them with their sin, God pronounces a curse on the serpent who deceived them. And he tells the serpent that one of the offspring of the woman would bruise his head, even though the serpent would bruise his heel. When God makes that promise in Genesis 3.15, that little tiny glimmer of hope in an otherwise devastating story, God doesn't promise that one day he's going to send Moses, although Moses had a role to play. God doesn't promise that one day he'll send a list of rules and commandments, although the law had a role to play too. God doesn't say that one day he'll send the priests, although they had a role to play as well. God doesn't promise to issue a quota on how many animal sacrifices you'll need to offer, or how many poor people you'll need to feed, or how many little old ladies you'll need to help across the street, or how polite you'll need to be. Many of those things can be good, but those things aren't the key to redemption. They had their place in God's story. But the key to redemption from sin 
and victory over death and reconciliation to God? The way to take away the sin of the world? That's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the true light. So if we understand the magnitude of Jesus' identity, according to verses 1 through 18, everything that follows in the Gospel of John makes a little bit more sense. Because if all that stuff is true in verses 1 through 18, it makes more sense that John the Baptist is willing to step away from the limelight and send his disciples Jesus' way. It makes more sense that Andrew would go grab his brother Peter and introduce him to Christ. It makes sense that Philip would fetch his brother Nathaniel, knowing that Nathaniel might be a little bit skeptical of a guy who comes from Nazareth. But when you've received and believed in Jesus, the fully God, fully man key to redeeming this dark world, how can you not pronounce it and proclaim it and bear witness to it? How can you not shout his name from the rooftops? Now, Jesus is going to go on to do miraculous signs, the first one being turning water into wine at Cana. And lots of people are going to believe in Jesus because of those signs. But again, there will be opponents. Not everyone will believe. Some will respond positively. More will respond negatively. And those people who see these miracles, who respond to Jesus one way or another, they might not have realized at the time that how they respond to Christ is the most important event in their lives. And that's still true today, 2,000 years later. So again, what does this passage tell you about Jesus? And in light of that question, how will you respond to Jesus? Because indifference and neutrality, those are not options. So if you've received Jesus and believed in his name, rejoice, because you're a child of God. And I pray that you would announce Jesus to the world with the same sense of urgency, the same excitement that John the Baptist and Andrew and Philip did. But if you haven't received Jesus, if you haven't believed in his name, you're walking in darkness. So I pray this morning that you would come to the true light. That this morning you would leave here rejoicing that you've become a child of God. That you would leave here enlightened by the identity, the works of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Again, these verses just revolve around his identity. And it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to think about. It's, it's maybe even overwhelming to try and wrap our minds around all of this. But I pray it would lead us not to confusion. I pray it would lead us to a sense of awe, to a sense of wonder, to a sense of worship at who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would leave here rejoicing that we are children of God, that we wouldn't have any doubt at all that we're saved, that we have been reborn, that we're no longer enemies or strangers or orphans, 
but that we're sons and daughters in your family. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you for all you've given to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's an old hymn written by a man named Josiah Condor who lived about 300 years ago, 250 years ago. And he wrote this, inspired by John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou, that every knee to thee should bow. I pray this morning we would all bow our knees to Christ. If you have not yet bowed your knee to Christ, talk to one of our elders. He'll be standing at the sides of the room when we end our service here in a few minutes. But a great way to bow your knee to Christ that we practice here every single week is to take communion. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Carl Pafford, who will get us into our time of communion.